You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. edition of the show before the show podcast on a thursday afternoon we are recording for you july 28th the final full month of the minor league season is nearly at hand my name is tyler mon sam dykstra and benjamin hill uh as well with us today i was going to say both um in uh in their respective locales which i guess is technically uh not inaccurate but ben's not in his normal locale he's in the state of oklahoma and joins us from the road what's going on guys yeah, I, I don't. I'm here in Brooklyn in my normal place. Ben is the one. You're in uh, aluminum foil, aluminum foil city. Aluminum foil city. That's that's what they call my apartment, and by they, I mean you exclusively, Tyler. That's <laughs> that's. I've had visitors to this apartment who will call it, you know, Sam's place, but no, aluminum <laughs> nope. foil city. Nope. Sorry. Um, that's not. But that's Ben, not how the how is uh, how is Tulsa looking? It's looking all right. Been here for several several hours now. Uh, I'm in a hotel room right now. There's a uh, parking garage visible out the window. But prior to that, I was um, poking around the area around the ballpark, One Oak Field. Um, you know, it's in the Greenwood District, the Tulsa neighborhood. That was the site in 1921 of the worst race riots in American history. So there's a lot of history in that neighborhood, um, a lot to process. Um, I'm not saying I processed it fully, but um, I remember being here 10 years ago in 2012 and learning about that uh, Greenwood massacre for the first time. And um, fortunately, in the ensuing decade, it's uh, become more of a well-known event, uh, more established, you know, mainstream part of American history. But it is interesting to have this double A ballpark uh, in the midst of that neighborhood, uh, Black Wall Street, where um, you know, there were hundreds of black owned businesses and they were destroyed uh, essentially in you know, one day and one night during a race riot. So an interesting place to be in that regard. Um, yeah, Tulsa had not been there for 10 years and uh, I spent the last two nights prior to coming to Tulsa in uh, Oklahoma City. So I'm in Oklahoma, broadly speaking. And you got there, you kicked things off in Oklahoma City um, and now being in Tulsa. And, um, you know, as you said, things change a lot. You've also got Wichita on the docket for this trip. But take us through kind of the, the early impressions. Obviously, Tulsa, you know, as you noted, the the ballpark is a gorgeous place in the uh, heart of a very historic neighborhood um, in not only the, the Tulsa community, but the black community uh, in that area as well. And uh, there are some really cool things that kind of anchor it to that community. I know they've got that, that really cool Jackie Robinson mural that's there now. And um, they paid homage to uh, the T-Town Clowns, who were a, a semi-pro uh, black baseball team in Tulsa in the early part of the 20th century. But tell us about what else you've been doing in, in OKC and now in Tulsa. Yeah, well, I started in Oklahoma City um, and had been uh, yeah, 10 years since I saw a game there at Chickasaw Bricktown Ballpark. Um, so overdue for visit per usual. Um, in promoting this trip and in my newsletter and whatnot, I said it had been uh, since 2011 that I'd last been there because it's hard to keep track of dates. But I was talking to uh, Oklahoma City Dodgers announcer uh, Alex Friedman yesterday, and he said his first year with the team was 2012. And I was like, well, you were here when I was here. And he says, yeah, that's because you came here in 2012. So 
it had been 10 years ago, not 11 years ago, but good to see Alex. Good to see that ballpark again. I mean, it's called Bricktown Ballpark and uh, it's in, you know, the Bricktown district of Oklahoma City. And uh, that name is not a misnomer. There's a lot of bricks uh, around uh, that area. You know, it's a former warehouse district. And that ballpark, you know, was one of the anchors for, you know, transforming it into what it is now with a lot of restaurants, shops, bars, hotels, um, you know, all sorts of things going on uh, in that general area. And so this is a, a big AAA ballpark, you know, the kind of, they just don't make anymore. You know, there's that, that kind of class of AAA ballpark with the, um, you know, two levels of seating and, you know, um, you know, capacity up in, you know, whatever, 13, 14, 15,000 range uh, at the ballpark, their second level of seats uh, on the first base side of the stadium is just tarped off completely because it's you know, such a big ballpark. Um, but they've added some cool group areas uh, since I've been there last uh, beer garden, kind of home run porch bar gathering area uh, in left field, um, a new club level uh, on the second level. Um, you know, this is a ballpark with a, a lot of room to move and, um, you know, a pretty scenic locale overall, just being in the heart of Bricktown and, uh, you know, surrounded by large buildings, a lot of brick buildings, a lot of hotels. Um, you know, it's, it's really in the thick of things in that regard. So got to spend two nights there. Uh, my first night was you know, I traveled that day and didn't want to say for sure that I'd be there that day, just given the, the vagaries of, uh, you know, airline travel these days. So I spent a lot of time on Tuesday getting the lay of the land, wandering around. But then yesterday was a, uh, a whirlwind for sure. I was at the ballpark from about 3.30 uh, till about 10.30, just talking to all sorts of people, um, you know, pursuing all sorts of different stories. Uh, one addition to the ballpark that was not there the last time I was there is the Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame slash Jim Thorpe Museum is now on the grounds of the ballpark. So I got to visit there, uh, you know, talk to the curator for quite a bit and, um, you know, learn about Oklahoma sports history. But that, that was a really interesting, um, you know, it's in the ballpark itself. It's a separate entity. It used to be a restaurant. And, uh, you know, so now there's that Hall of Fame. So definitely if you're coming to uh, see the Oklahoma City Dodgers at Chickasaw Bricktown Ballpark, you know, I'd make time to visit that Hall of Fame. And uh, then certainly talking about Tulsa, I would make time if you're going to see the Tulsa Drillers to really explore the, the larger Greenwood district as well, because, uh, you know, there's a lot going on around there and a lot of history. So, yeah, good to be back in Oklahoma. And, and last night, you know, I don't, um, you know, I don't, when I get in touch with teams, I don't say, hey, put me in between any contests and X, Y, and Z. But, um, you know, if, if I'm asked, I do it. And uh, last night, I haven't put this on social media, but I, I participated, or yet I will, but I participated in an impossible challenge where you had to eat six crackers in uh, under a minute. And, um, you know, the team got gluten-free crackers for me, you know, because I have celiac disease. And uh, everyone was saying that I can come closer to finishing this impossible challenge of eating six crackers uh, than anyone they'd ever seen. I was kind of a you know ballpark star in that regard. And part of me wants to just, you know, give myself a lot of credit because I'm good at impossible challenges. I pulled off a lot of, uh, you know, insanely improbable things in my long and illustrious career. But then I couldn't help, you know, the uh, self-critical side came in and I said, well, they gave me gluten-free crackers and maybe those are easier to eat than the normal crackers that people usually eat. Maybe if I had actually completed the challenge, which I almost did, I just couldn't fully swallow uh, everything by the end of the minute. I think there would have been asterisk on that because I had, you know, gluten-free crackers. I don't know. I was thinking about it a lot last night, but at the end of the day, I tried my best. I was going to say, what is, what is there you could do with this uh, skill apparently that you didn't know you had? 
uh, go on the road. I mean, I'm on the road now, <laughs> but go on the road in a different context. You sure. know? Yeah. Like you a traveling. crackers. Yeah. You know, just like they used to do it with the old barnstorming teams. I just roll down to town's main street, you know, ride like a big old fashioned bicycle, have a banner flying behind me. Like this man eats six crackers in a minute without a, a drink of water. And then, uh, you know, charge a mission, set up a little tent and, uh, you know, make some cash and then move on to the next town. That's, that's an American life. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's like a Coen Brothers plot come to life. <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted to ask about Ben is you mentioned last time you were in OKC was 2012. In 2012, the team there was known as the Red Hawks. Yes, I wanted the Dodgers. Um, and there's a little bit of a Dodgers theme to your trip now being in Tulsa. You're going from their AAA affiliate to their AA affiliate. If you didn't know anything about minor league baseball, that might be a little surprising to folks learning about the LA system that their top two affiliates are in Oklahoma. What kind of Dodgers influence is there on these two teams? Because normally at, at those two levels, you're trying to get somewhere close to the parent club. You're trying to get people excited for guys who are going to be playing potentially just down the road. Obviously they have further to go from Oklahoma city to LA. So what is just the Dodgers vibe in OKC and Tulsa? Yeah, well, in Oklahoma City, it's it's quite pronounced. I mean, the team is named the Dodgers. You know, when they were the Red Hawks, uh, they had been a Rangers affiliate for a long time. I think the Astros for a little bit. Uh, but when they became the Oklahoma, Oklahoma City Dodgers, that wasn't just an affiliation. That was members of the Dodgers ownership group buying the team. Hence, the Oklahoma City team, not just having the affiliation, but being named the Dodgers. So, I mean, it's just right up front and center with the with the branding all over the ballpark. You know, Dodger blue you know, the LA logo logos. And while I'm not in general, a huge um, fan of, you know, a parent of a minor league team having its parent club for a name. I mean, there is that natural tie-in, at least aesthetically that Oklahoma, you know, okay, LA, uh, it just lends itself really well to LA Dodgers um, uh, imagery uh, throughout the ballpark to have the LA and Oklahoma also stand for the LA in uh in the dodgers so the okla kind of goes a long way in, in really selling it and solidifying uh the overall look i'm not sure how many you know dodgers fans are in oklahoma city who are like yes now i get to see my favorite team but you know i'm sure there's uh you know there's people who now follow the dodgers a lot more closely because triple uh, a is oklahoma city and um yeah, and it looks good all around. The branding does uh, look good all around. I think that was 2016, I want to say, that they became the Dodgers. And, uh, yeah, so it is a kind of funny thing. I mean, the Dodgers system starts in, what, Midland, Michigan, with the Great Lakes Loons, then goes real close to L.A. with the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes, then goes to for two stops in Oklahoma, Tulsa, where I am right now, and uh, Oklahoma City at AAA. So it's uh, – Definitely kind of an interesting system in the way it's spread out. But, yeah, to hit Dodgers double and triple A uh, within about an hour and a half drive of each other in the state of Oklahoma might not sound like an intuitive thing. But, you know, it is good for um, you know fans of the team who are in Oklahoma and also obviously from a logistical level within a spread out system, at least to have those two teams, you know, close to each other to shuttle back and forth between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Yeah, not to correct you too quick, but just now with the changes, Rancho is where they start because Rancho is now single A. Oh, you are correct. Of course. Sam is always correct. Yeah. <laughs> but still, it, it's interesting that they start close and go out and then kind of circle back. That's right. Right. So they start in Rancho at, at not low A, at single A. My goodness. It's so much to keep track of in minor league baseball. Then you're right. High A in Midland, Michigan. 
then Oklahoma, then back to Los Angeles. There is a lot. Um, and then you are uh, next up going to a place that has not been uh, a member of the affiliated ranks minor league baseball for too long in a city that was formerly a member of the affiliated ranks until uh, their former franchise, the Wichita Wranglers moved, but you get a chance to check out the wind surge in their very young ballpark. And uh, what are you most excited for, for Wichita? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I'm always happy to repeat it, but you know, this is me for the third time, uh, you know, completing the affiliated minor league baseball landscape in my travels. Wichita is currently the only ballpark that I've yet to have visited. So that's the number one thing I'm excited about is if there's 120 teams, well, 119 ballparks, as we all know, because uh, Jupiter and Palm Beach share a ballpark down there in Florida. But of the 119 ballparks, I've currently been to 118, most of them multiple times. And then Wichita will be finally getting to the only one I need to go to. You know, that ballpark, uh, Riverfront Stadium, was supposed to open in 2020 with the team as the AAA Miami affiliate. Then with all the uh, – changes to the minor league landscape they never played a game at AAA during the 2020 season that wasn't and uh, then with the restructuring of the landscape they became double a uh, twins so they're in kansas double a minnesota affiliate uh, the wichita wind surge so um you know I'm, I'm excited to go there i've heard good things about the ballpark uh looking forward to exploring uh, the general area uh, maybe getting a little more context about why they have a team called an alternate identity called the you know the turbo tubs with a troll logo. I've tried to explain it in the past, but I, there's a, a troll statue that I, I want to check out and he's like imprisoned under a grate. So I, I want to check that out and um, yeah, and just see the ballpark. And there's a lot of art, a lot of murals around it. So um, I'll just see what I see, but it's nice to go to someplace new. And um, you know, there were a lot of new ballparks in the landscape in 2021, uh, with all the ballparks that were supposed to open in 2020 with ones that then did open on uh, as scheduled in 2021. And then a former in indie ballparks coming to uh, the affiliated ranks. Uh, you know, there's been a lot to get caught up on and uh, happy to finally see Wichita and then say hashtag Ben everywhere. Once again, it's a good feeling to, to hit that milestone. And where do I go from here? I don't know. I think I'll just take long naps in hotel rooms as a career because that's really my favorite thing to do. Have you asked the wind surge to do anything special for you upon entering the ballpark? I have not. You know, I don't make those sort of requests usually. Uh, when, when I did complete the entire circuit for the first time, you know, which took me the better part of a decade, um, that was in Grand Junction, Colorado in 2018. So that one definitely had a little more hoopla around it, at least in my own mind. And the team did give me a jersey um, with the number one on it, I guess showing they were the last. Um, you know, I completed the, the travels in Grand Junction. So that one was like, whoa, I did it. I didn't even know what I was doing in this job. And now I've been to every ballpark. It doesn't feel as you know special now that I'm just kind of playing catch up. But you're right, though. I won't be there till tomorrow. I'm going to shoot off an email or two and say, um, hey, you know, activate that red carpet. Ben's biz coming through. Activate the red carpet, Wichita. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Uh, on Instagram, you can find him at the Ben's Biz. And of course, you can read all of his stuff at MILB.com and uh, enjoy the rest of the trip, man. Can't wait to hear about Wichita. That ballpark looks so cool. And uh, we'll, we'll chat with you about it next week.
yeah, looking forward to it. I have a lot more to say about Tulsa. And then, yeah, of course, Wichita. And and then much more beyond that. It's a, it's a busy time of year. And uh, looking forward to uh, processing it all with you guys. No two guys I'd rather process with. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's hot stove season across baseball. And as we continue along in this week's episode of the show before the show, we are uh, able to talk about one deal and maybe a whole bunch of other deals uh where there are a million things to discuss and maybe none of them will actually happen. Um uh, let's talk about the first one first Sam which is last night the New York Yankees acquired Andrew Benintendi from the Kansas City Royals and sent a trio of prospects back to the Royals two of them ranked in the Royals top 30 now the third not give us the lowdown on the prospects and went the other way in the Benintendi deal. Yeah, I mean this was one of the interesting trades because it always felt like the Royals were going to be sellers at this year's deadline. Um Benintendi, one of the big things was we found out when the Royals played in Toronto that he is not vaccinated. So was the team going to be interested in trying to acquire him, especially in the AL, a team that could play Toronto in the playoffs? Turns out the Yankees were, and the Yankees play in the AL East, same division as the Jays, so we're going to have to keep an eye out on that. But the Royals decide to get three prospects back, Beckway, TJ Sykema, and Chandler Champlain. Uh, all pitching prospects, which I find interesting because I think if you look at the top of the Royal system right now, it's loaded up with position players. Vinny Pascantino and Nick Prado are their top two prospects overall. Nick Lofton is, is not that far behind them. And also uh, Michael Massey, excuse me, is uh, become one of their best prospects as well as another hitter. But it seemed like they were still more loaded on the pitching side than on the hitting side. So they acquire pitching depth here furthering their depth in the minor league system. Uh, of the three that they acquired, I think Beckway is probably the best prospect, the 22-year-old at high A right now. Good fastball, a good slider. There are some serious control concerns coming into this year. Uh, he seems to have ironed out at least some of those. Feels like the most likely of the group to be a potential starting pitcher someday. Sigma uh, hadn't pitched in either of the last two seasons, once in one because of the pandemic and another because of injuries. He's finally getting back up to speed now. He's got 36 and a third innings at Hudson Valley. He was actually the better prospect of the three coming into the year, but he just turned 24 in July. He still hasn't pitched above high A ball. That's why Beckway kind of passes him on the chart. And Champlain was a ninth-round pick out of USC last year. Um, so the entire industry had an opportunity to draft him, fell all the way to the ninth round to the Yankees. And was showing really good stuff, I think, at single-A Tampa before this deal. That's why the Royals picked him up right-hander, 23 years old. So, again, pretty old, especially old for the single-A level. But he's one of those spin kings. His slider's really good. His curveball shows really good metrics. He didn't throw it nearly as much as the slider in the Florida State League, which makes me question the pitch a little bit. 
Um, but again, some really good spin on that. It's more of a 12 to six option offering the slider to plane break on that one. He touched as high as 98 earlier in the spring has lost his velocity as the season has gone along, but he's pretty big at six foot five. There's some belief that as he ages, as he matures, as he, you know, gets deeper into his pro career, that size will allow him to maintain that velo deeper into a season so he can consistently hit mid nineties. He's a little bit more of a wild card. But when you look at what the Royals got here for essentially a rental of Andrew Benintendi, who is a good hitter, a pretty good fielder, won a gold glove last year. Uh, but he was, they're only getting not even half a season out of him. And they got three pitching prospects. If one of those guys becomes a number four, number five type starter eventually, which is probably the ceiling for all three, for a rental of Andrew Benintendi, that's pretty good. When you get three of those guys and you increase your odds, all right, that's pretty good as well. It, it didn't have necessarily the big name that I thought Benintendi could have gotten back or at least bigger name. But again, if you increase your odds of getting a decent piece out of this, that's not a bad strategy either. And the Royals clearly went for depth here over, you know, big shiny name. Well, we are coming up on the major league trade deadline here in 2022. And of course there have been so many discussions as to uh, maybe big names moving um, some places uh, more likely than others, I suppose. But um, obviously the August 2nd deadline coming up puts a whole bunch of players in play uh, that could bring huge hauls back. The first one that we have already discussed a little bit, but one that I think we'll be discussing until and probably after uh, the deadline comes and goes is Juan Soto. Do you think that the Nationals are any more likely to deal Juan Soto at this time, this week, with the deadline only four or five days away than they were last week? Uh, if so, why or why not? This is a, a deal that I think we were both last week kind of saying, I, I don't think that there's any urgency for the Nationals to to pull this and make this happen because they've got two and a half more years of team control uh, for Juan Soto. But how long do you let this situation go on um, with as potentially toxic as it is? I mean, that's a, that's a team that's really struggling this year anyway, but how long do you let this hang over this franchise? Yeah. The only thing that's maybe changed my mind and it, it hasn't, I'd still think like the price for Soto, even if you attach a Patrick Corbin to eat up some money and Mike Rizzo has come out and said, like, they're not going to do that. They're not going to change a package just so somebody else can take, Patrick Corbin's contract. I don't know if I entirely believe him because he's also said in the past that Juan Soto is not going to get traded and now he's openly on the market. Um, but I think the one thing that may have changed my mind at least a little bit about why Juan Soto could be traded is the news that Washington, the Washington Nationals are up for sale. I mean, the ownership group there in D.C. seems like they're trying to sell the team this offseason. And in my mind, if I was an owner, I would want somebody's a big superstar on my team, somebody who I can have in big flashing lights to carry my franchise moving forward. But it sounds like if they are going to maybe move Soto, maybe that ownership change is a reason why you do it. So the new owners can come in fresh slate, build something up entirely, maybe go out and sign a superstar in a year or two, but a superstar of their choosing, not somebody that was handed to them. I don't know if that is enough to sway me. I think there's still a lot of smoke coming out of all directions. Now we're hearing, I think Buster only tweeted this earlier. A lot of executives think like the Padres are the most likely team to acquire him. Earlier in this week, Mark Feinstein did a story. It seemed like the Dodgers had the most pieces to do it. I still think this is a lot of posturing by the industry. Just trying to think like who could pull this off. 
and there's a difference between could and will. And right. I know AJ Preller with the Padres is a guy who loves to take big swings and God bless him for it. He's always trying to make that team in San Diego better by doing that. The Dodgers and nationals were paired up last year in a major trade. One that sent Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to LA for Josiah Gray, Kiebert Ruiz and some other pieces. So we know those front offices have negotiated before. I still think the price is way too high. And a big reason why we haven't seen many trades, Ben Benintendi's really been hit to this point, was I think, A, the draft was later than normal. A lot of front offices take up a lot of their time going into the draft. And I think if you think like, oh, that well, they're different departments. They are in some respects, but GMs like to be involved in the draft. They want to be in that room to find out the future of their franchise. So that's that took up a lot of space. And then there was the news that, you know, the deadline for deciding an international draft versus the qualifying offer, those two things being tied, that was coming up as well. And, and so some teams had to make a decision that, hey, do we want to trade this guy who we could give the qualifying offer to? And if he doesn't sign, then we get a draft pick out of it. That changes the trade calculus. Now, we know that's still around now. They didn't agree to an international draft. So the qualifying offer is still around. That could affect things. That doesn't affect Soto. Soto still has two and a half years of control. He's not getting a qualifying offer. I still tip on the side of like, that would be way too big of a blockbuster deal to, to pull off. It might be the biggest of our lifetimes. Yeah. To be honest, Tyler. Like, I, I think that's kind of crazy, but. You know, it's a, it's it a could big, happen. You know, you know it's a big trade uh, possibility when people can't even think of a baseball trade to compare it to because you hear everybody talk about, uh, well, it's going to be a Herschel Walker type deal or a Wayne Gretzky type deal. Um, so you right. have to go outside of the sport in order to draw in comps for it. Um, is there anybody else who you feel like could potentially be a, a shock trade piece. We know the teams have called and at least inquired about what it would take to uh, to acquire Shohei Otani from the Angels. Um, he potentially is somebody who is who is out there and could be moved. Uh, you know, is Wilson Contreras going to end up somewhere? Um, is there anybody who stands out that you think I got a feeling this dude might be on the move? Well, I mean, if Otani, if that were to happen, that would be crazy, and I understand it to some degree. And the Angels have not competed in the way they would have hoped this year. Mike Trout now has like a back issue. Yeah. And if you're Shohei Otani, you're probably looking at like, I have free agency in a year and a half. I'm probably leaving here and trying to find a, con a contender. So if you're the angels, you're like, well, he's never going to be more valuable than he is right now. Right. To us in a trade. But that just doesn't have as much smoke because I think that kind of not came out of nowhere, but it, it doesn't have the lead up that a Soto trade does. So if that were to happen, I would be completely flabbergasted. Like that, that would be insane. Um, you mentioned Wilson Contreras. I think that's probably going to happen. It, it seems like yeah. everybody involved knows he's going elsewhere. Where that's going to be, whether it's the Mets, where it's somebody else, we'll have to see. But you know, when he gets a big ovation in his final game at Wrigley, what people assume is his final game at Wrigley, and even he acknowledges that. Yeah, he's probably got at least one foot out the door, if not a foot and a half. Uh, one I'm going to be looking at. Is Trey Mancini? Okay. Not not a huge name, not a superstar, yeah. but you know, a good, good player and a player who has been the face of the Baltimore Orioles the last few years. I wouldn't say he is necessarily now. Maybe he is. I mean, obviously he's the veteran presence on that team. But Adley Rutschman is the team is one of the guys carrying that team now. And they're hovering close to five hundred. I've said this a couple weeks ago, like maybe they have something in them to make a playoff push. But they're also on the outside looking in. Like they're not 
looking likely to make the playoffs right now. I, I believe Trey Mancini is a free agent this offseason. Do they explore trading him just to get some sort of return out of him? Or do you look at an extension? Like that, I, I think that's fascinating. Um, I think Brandon Hyde, their manager, said today, like, Trey Mancini is a guy I want to manage for the next 10 years. Who could blame him? Like, the, again, that guy has just been a model citizen for that organization, coming back from cancer, being a comeback player of the year, um, being as good as he is as a first base bat, where he's somebody people want to go out and get. Like, I don't know. I, I'm fascinated to see how that trade dynamic works when you're balancing both what the major league team is now, what it's trying to be, and just the emotions of, of a star player. Okay, so I want to spin this into a question that is more um, directly pertinent to our interests, which is, of course, the minor league systems and what organizations have or are building. You mentioned a, a couple who I think would fit in this conversation very well, but who right now do you see as sort of being in the sweet spot of being able to make a move, uh, whether it's a, a team that has an asset that needs to be able to rebuild something. I mean, the Angels have been a bad franchise for a while, and the Angels right now have a minor league system that is uh, lean. Uh, are the Angels the best position team to overhaul things by making one big deal? I don't know if they're going to, but are they there? On the flip side of that, you look at an organization like the Dodgers or the Padres, as you mentioned, or even the Cardinals, who were also mentioned uh, in the Juan Soto deal, who right now is a contending team that has enough pieces to be able to make big swings. So kind of those those two steps, who has the most to gain from making a deal and getting pieces back in return, and who has the most pieces to be able to move? Yeah, well, I'll take the first part first, as, as one does. Um, you mentioned the Angels there. Again, Otani, I think, is really the only piece – that could yeah really they're not dealing like trout system right i missed it what'd you say i said they're not dealing like trout so yeah otani is kind yeah, of the guy that right. we look at yeah right right um so i don't think they're in a place right now just because of what the dynamic has always been in in anaheim in terms of trying to win now going out and signing anthony rendon trying to bring in other pieces going after garrett cole a couple years ago i don't think they're really in a place where they Think about rebuilding so much but to go back to the Juan Soto conversation you look at what the Nats system is now and I know they went out and sold at last year's deadline and built up a system that was pretty down but Gray is graduated Ruiz is graduated those guys graduated pretty quick you look at who's left right now I mean their top prospect is Kate Cavalli who hasn't exactly had the year we would have hoped this year at AAA he's kind of been in fits and starts in terms of proving his command um, after leading minor league baseball and strikeouts last year, Brady house has regressed after he was their first round pick last year. Isn't showing the power that people would have hoped Cole Henry has injury problems again. So I love their draft pick of Elijah green. I think he's their top prospect by far right now. Uh, but when you look at is the NAT system really built right now for a rebuild, I would say, no, it, it's not deep enough and it doesn't have that star power trading a Soto whether you want to go and call it the Herschel Walker deal, Wayne Gretzky deal, whatever, that is a farm system building trade. That brings in a lot of pieces that makes right. the system look so much better. Um, I, I'm not going to say it's a top 10 system. Well, let's see what, what kind of trades they get. Some of the rumors with the Padres, let's say, bring in Mackenzie Gore and CJ Abrams, who make the organization better. But again, graduated prospects, they don't affect the farm system necessarily. You should probably be less worried about that than I am as, 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 a, as a fan out there. Like farm system rankings don't really matter. If you have young prospects, 
who are the eight or young players who are the age of prospects but have graduated from prospectum, they count just as much towards your future. Um, but yeah, I think the Nats are best set up to really make that jump in terms of a farm system if they pull the trigger on a Soto deal. Taking your second question, we mentioned the Padres, we mentioned the Dodgers. Those those teams have decent depth. I think the Dodgers are deeper than the Padres, but they had the top level talent as well. If you're the Dodgers, you can give up Diego Cartaya, Bobby Miller, uh, Andy Pajes, you know, Miguel Vargas, and keep on chugging. Like all of those guys and keep on chugging. Maybe if you're the, the Nationals, you also ask for a Gatlin Lux or something like that. Still doesn't really hurt the Dodgers. They get better with Juan Soto. The other one I'm watching out for is the St. Louis Cardinals. You look at who they have for prospects. Yeah. Trading a Jordan Walker is going to carry a lot of weight in the trade. He is, I think we have him at number seven right now, maybe number six in our top 100. He's definitely a top 10 prospect across the board. Um, he's, an, he's a prospect a lot of organizations would love to have. And he's going to be the headliner, but you're going to need to add other pieces. And they have that as well. Mason Wynn is having a breakout season at the plate. We've seen what he can do defensively. Gordon Graceffo is having a major breakout season this year. Matthew Liebertor, I have my issues with, but he's still young. Um, Dylan Carlson is somebody at the major league level who, if you're trading for Soto, becomes expendable, but could be very useful to the Washington Nationals and become their future outfielder. Um the Cardinals have the pieces. Now, if they were to trade all those guys away, the the, ro the roster and the, well, I should say the minor league system becomes pretty decimated. But that's not an issue because you have Juan Soto now for two and a half years and he's only 23. So I think those three are the ones I kind of zero in on of like teams that could really pull this off, especially now that we know the Yankees are probably off the board considering they got Ben Intendi. So, so much stuff to keep an eye on as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline, which uh, by the time we talk to you next, it will already be in our past. So we will break down everything that happens at the deadline, which prospects move where and all that. And uh, it's always a, a hectic and wild few days, but um, some exciting stuff coming up for uh, baseball talents across the country here over the next uh, four or five days. Uh, Josh Jackson stops by to say hello for Ghost of the Miners. And then we're back to wrap this thing up on the other side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was as real as the air we breathe. The others have a discernible odor of fiction. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Concord Self-Reliance. B. The Lubbock Loners. C. The Corning Independence. 
The correct answer is C, the Corning Independent, who went their own way in the Pony League of 1953. In the history books, Corning's Pony League team was the Corning A's, named for their parent club Philadelphia A's, for the 1951 and 1952 seasons, and upon getting rid of that major league affiliation, rebranded as the Independent. The history books aren't wrong, but they may not be telling the whole story either. Corning, New York, known as the Crystal City and home of the Corning Museum of Glass, had already fielded a litany of sports teams known as the Independents going back decades, including an amateur baseball squad in the 1920s. The Corning Independent was a short-lived but influential Steuben County newspaper in the late 19th century, which may have sponsored a team and kicked off a trend. But, whatever the backstory, when the Corning Club and the Pony League trotted out from under an affiliation with the A's but vowed to stay on the circuit in November of 52, the Independence moniker was there waiting. Unfortunately, though, those Independents of 53 could have used a little help. They stood alone, alright, way down in 8th place in an 8-team league. And they weren't just losing on the field. In early July, even though they'd established a working agreement with Cleveland, attendance at Independence Games was down 5,000 fans from 52, when the Philadelphia organization had lost $18,000 on the team. Although they warned the league they may have to drop out by July 15, Corning showed a little grit as the Independents tapped into some self-resolve. They finished the season 40-85, and 85, but, hey, they finished the season. The team's rebranding as the Independents was a bold declaration, but it seems they did not have the constitution for the endeavor. In 54, they established an affiliation with Boston and won the whole thing as the Corning Red Sox, making the playoffs for the first of four straight seasons. And that's how the Independents partnered up. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams overloaded on lore in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Golden Shores Mermen. B. The Rainbow River Jackalopes. C. The Magic Valley Cowboys. Want to know the answer? Clap your heels and believe. Or tune in for the next Ghosts of a Miner. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is taking himself out to lunch, and I think I can spear his pickle. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show, MILB.TV is where you can catch all the top talent in minor league baseball and watch games from coast to coast. Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV coming up? Yeah, we're kind of in hog watch season, which is something I learned last week or we last are. weekend, I should say, uh, when I was at the Durham Bulls game in Durham and Curtis Mead was pulled mid game. Didn't seem to be injured. It wasn't in the middle of an at bat or anything or whatever. So I tweeted that. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, the Rays are pulling off the blockbuster. They're trading Curtis Mead, which is not what happened. He ended up having an arm issue that was not evident to anybody watching. But there was a reason for that. So a lot of people are on the edge of their seats right now. Basically, just watching prospects to see, are you coming out of the game? And for what are you immediately getting on a flight? So, picking up from what I said last segment, uh, I would recommend watching Springfield, Double A Springfield this weekend. Any chance you get, they're playing Frisco. Um, so, there is a matchup against Jack Leiter this weekend, but Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn. 
So those are three Futures gamers you can watch in one game, which is super exciting in itself. Jordan Walker, Mason Wynn, and Jack Leiter this weekend. That should be really fun. But also, if you're a team or a fan of a team that might be swinging a big deal, wink, wink, Washington, uh, and you want to see what Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn are all about, this is a chance to do that as well. And maybe, hey, maybe you'll be watching the game. You'll hear that Jordan Walker was pulled mid-game. I hate to throw that out there because I'm sure he's on the edge of his seat finding out if the Cardinals are going to trade him as well. Uh, and that's a difficult place to be in as a young person and a prospect. But still, like, tune into these games just to see what these guys are all about. They are very talented. Uh, even if you're just a Cardinals fan and wants to check in on these guys, see how they're coming along at the double-A level, two stops away from the, the majors. Hey, even if the Cardinals don't pull off a, a blockbuster trade, it, it might be because they like these guys a lot and they are a big part of the future. So keep an eye on that double-A Springfield team over the weekend when they are at home against Frisco. Uh, Tyler, what do you got your eye on? Well, you mentioned the Nationals. Uh, Nats fans need something to feel good about, and I'm going to give you something to feel good about. Cade Cavalli uh, has been very, very good as of late. Uh, Cavalli, the number 45 overall prospect in baseball and a guy who is very much a friend of the show, the top prospect in the Nationals organization. He's been really, really good his last few times out. He has not allowed an earned run since June 29th. Now, granted, he had one short start in July, but so far through the month of July, 15 and two-thirds innings, seven hits, one run, not earned, 16 strikeouts, and three walks. His ERA for the month, obviously, is zero. He has dropped his season-long ERA from 5.07 to 4.03. He, uh, as of right now, it looks as though he will be on the hill coming up uh, next Wednesday as he got his most recent start uh, this past Wednesday. We're recording this on Thursday, and uh, he got it on uh, the 27th of July. So coming up uh, next Wednesday, August 3rd, he and his team will be on the road at Columbus and you can catch that game at MILB.TV. So that'll do it. Um, Stay hydrated. Uh, Take some time to walk away from the screens when you're following trade deadline news. It can be uh, a lot. So, you know, give yourself room to breathe. It's uh, it's an exciting and somewhat terrifying time of year uh, if you're a crazy baseball fan. So, uh, you know, keep all those things in mind. Coming up August 2nd. Uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mond. Uh, thanks for tuning in for another week of the show before the show, and we'll catch you next week.